Hello, everybody, and welcome to Charts with Dan. There is so much to get to this week, including a historic weekend one to weekend two drop for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're going to be breaking down everything about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and a lot of the other top five films because it was not so strong a weekend for Ant-Man, but a pretty strong weekend for Jesus and Bears. So we're going to get into all of that. I actually had a little bit of extra time to prep this week's show because I took a flight last week with Southwest Airlines. That's right, Southwest Airlines. They can get you where you're going unless it's raining the night before, in which case, well, you never know when you're going to hit your final destination. Want to get away? Yes, that's what I'm paying you for. Anyway, thanks to Southwest Airlines for that extra day tacked onto my LA trip last week and the extra time in the airport. And also thanks to my partner here on the show, as always, Carbon Health. You may know Carbon Health by its 120 plus locations around the country that handle urgent care, COVID tests, RSV, flu tests, and vaccinations. But what you might want to look into is how they're expanding into primary care services that also include connected health, which is the idea that our health isn't just about our bodies, but also our minds. That's why Carbon Health's providers are now coming connected with mental health specialists as well. Carbon Health is expanding these primary care services more and more as we get further into 2023. If you're in Massachusetts, you're going to be able to access those primary care services very soon in just a matter of days. If you're in California, you can access those primary care services now, as well as urgent care services, virtual health care through the app, everything that Carbon Health has already offered. I love being partnered with Carbon Health because I believe in what they're doing which is to help make healthcare as affordable and accessible to as many people as possible. So thank you as always to Carbon Health for being my partner here on the show. And let's get to a very active weekend at the box office. It was one that was a bit of a nail biter because we didn't quite know just how big the drop was going to be for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania until the final numbers came in yesterday. That's one of the reasons I like to do the show on Tuesdays because we get those sweet, juicy final numbers. And it was a historic drop for Marvel, or I should say the MCU, but not in a particularly good way. The second weekend of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, ended up coming in at $31,964,803. That's a 69.9% drop. The only good news about that for Marvel is that it wasn't a 70% drop, and we'll break down how that stacks up against other films in the MCU and also in the comic book genre in just a few minutes. Exceeding expectations was Cocaine Bear, which actually kept coming in higher and higher, no pun intended, as the weekend went on. It ended up with a total weekend gross of $23,260,790. Also exceeding expectations in third place was Jesus Revolution, which was targeting the Christian faith-based audience. $15.8 million, a strong start in third place. Bumped all the way down to fourth place, Avatar The Way of Water in its 11th week of release, a 25.8% drop from last week and a $4.8 million total. In fifth place, Puss in Boots The Last Wish in its 10th week of release, another strong hold, 22.8% drop and a $4.1 million total. Magic Mike's Last Dance falls to number six with a 47.4% drop in its third week. Seventh place and eighth place actually switched spots once the final numbers came in. 80 for Brady is in seventh place with a 49.3% drop from last weekend and a $1.9 million total with Knock at the Cabin in eighth place with a 52.9% drop from last weekend and a $1.8 million total. Coming in just over $1 million was missing in its sixth week with $1,018,000 and in 10th place coming in under $1 million in its ninth week of release was Tom Hanks's A Man Called Otto, $851,000, a 46.8% drop from last weekend. Dropping out of the top 10 this week were Titanic, the 25th anniversary re-release after two weeks, and Liam Neeson's Marlowe after just one week in the top 10. When we look at what I call the road to recovery, we see a decline from last weekend, a lot of it being the big drop for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. We are much closer to where we have been since theaters reopened back in 2021 and 2022 than where the box office traditionally is at this time of year. We'll see if Creed 3 can help to goose these numbers up just a little bit as we head into the next weekend because it doesn't look like we can really count on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So let's get into this drop 
drop from Ant-Man and the Wasp and where it really ranks as far as the MCU goes. And I think that people knew that we were definitely in for a big drop when they looked at the Friday to Friday numbers. So you look at its opening Friday, which does have those Thursday previews rolled in, but then so does every other movie. And then you look at how much it makes on the subsequent Friday. And if it's a big drop from Friday to Friday, that usually means you're going to have a big drop for weekend two. And when we look at the Friday to Friday drop for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, it was the second worst drop in MCU's history. It dropped 82.1% from the previous Friday, which was bested only by Spider-Man No Way Home, which dropped 83.9% from Friday to Friday, week one to week two. Although the big caveat there being number one, Spider-Man No Way Home put up a massive Friday number due to Thursday previews and the fact that it had a huge opening weekend and the way that Spider-Man No Way Home's release fell, that Christmas slowdown was happening right on its second weekend. So this is one of those things where, yes, it's in the record books, but you have to kind of put an asterisk there. But when we look at the weekend one to weekend two drop-off, just three days to three days, there really is no rescue for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania because when we look at how this stacks up, you see that Ant-Man and the Wasp's 69.9% drop was the biggest weekend one to weekend two drop-off in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It used to be Black Widow with a 67.8% drop. Right ahead of that was Thor Love and Thunder with a 67.7% drop. Then Spider-Man No Way Home with that Christmas slowdown, a 67.5% drop. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was 67%. Black Panther Wakanda Forever was 63.3%. And then Eternals was 62.3%. And as I'm going down there, the seven biggest drops from Weekend 1 to Weekend 2 in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one thing that you may notice, and the reason that they're all orange on this graphic here, is that those are all movies that came out post-2020 as we entered Phase 4 and Phase 5 of the MCU, which means that, yes, the seven biggest drops from the first to the second weekend have been seven of the last eight Marvel movies that have been released. Only Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings was able to buck this trend. It only dropped 54% from Weekend 1 to Weekend 2, which is much more in line with what we usually see or what we usually did see from an MCU film. And when we widen that out to just movies based on Marvel properties, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is not in very good company. Right now, tied for fifth place on the biggest second weekend drop-off by percentage is X-Men Origins Wolverine and Elektra. They both dropped 69% <laughs> nice in their second weekend. Then Ang Lee's Hulk, which dropped 69.7%, which means that Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania dropped slightly more than Ang Lee's Hulk with 69.9% there in third place. However, it is bailed out by Dark Phoenix, which dropped 71.5%, and Morbius, which dropped 73.9%. However, this is not where MCU films are used to being. When you look at this company, Morbius, Dark Phoenix, Hulk, Elektra, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, none of these movies are close to classics in the comic book genre, and they're all pretty much considered box office disappointments. So I don't think that Kevin Feige wants to see Quantumania mixed up with these movies, and it actually also ranks among the top five worst drops ever for films in the DC and Marvel universe. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania had the fifth biggest drop-off for any film based on a Marvel or DC property, only beaten by The Suicide Squad with a 71.5% drop-off, then Dark Phoenix, also with 71.5%, Morbius with 73.9%, and Steel with 78%. And you really don't want to be in company with these films, although I think that The Suicide Squad is easily the best movie here. It was not a box office success, partially because it was available simultaneously on streaming, but the point of the matter here is that this is not really a silver lining situation when it comes to this film. A lot of times when we look at big drops at the box office, et cetera, or something that maybe didn't meet expectations, we can say like, oh, well, you know, but this, but that. There's not really a, a but here, except for Modoc's but, when it comes to Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. This is bad news for Marvel. This is bad news for the MCU. You can't really spin this drop at all. It's not like when we look at box office results that other movies haven't been doing well. You could say with Black Widow and Eternals, maybe, uh, and even Shang-Chi, oh, well, you know, it was right after the theaters were opening and nobody was really going to the movies and some of them had those day and date Disney Plus things. Black Widow in particular had that. And so you could say like, well, yes, but, yes, but. But we are now in 2023. 
Movies are doing extremely well. We just had Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water, two of the biggest movies of all time that both played and had legs. They didn't collapse from weekend one to weekend two. You can't say that it's all about, well, people aren't going to the theaters. They're going to theaters for other movies, both in raw numbers and statistically as far as drop-offs. Puss in Boots The Last Wish just had one of the leggiest runs of the year, I think the best of 2022. People are going to the movies. And they're going back to see movies, and they're going back to see movies that are also hitting streaming soon. Black Panther Wakanda Forever did well domestically, but they are not going back to see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. And on last week's show, I talk about the fact that I think that it did open well. It was a franchise best for Ant-Man. It defied the bad reviews. It outstripped what the tracking was and what the expectations were, but it absolutely collapsed in the second weekend. So the box office opening is one story up here, the collapse is another story down here. When we look at the MCU grosses through 10 days, these are unadjusted numbers. You see that Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is towards the back of the pack. It is right now trailing Guardians of the Galaxy, the first Iron Man in 2008, Spider-Man Homecoming. It's just a little bit above what Doctor Strange and Captain America the Winter Soldier were doing through 10 days of release. And when you adjust these numbers for inflation, then it gets even worse for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. You see that it moves even further down to the back of the pack. And if you're looking at the roughly equivalent numbers, it's tracking behind Thor The Dark World, basically where Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings and Thor and the last Ant-Man film, Ant-Man and the Wasp, were through 10 days of release. And this is not what Marvel wants. Number one, not from a budgetary standpoint, because it was confirmed through various different industry stories and sources, etc., that this movie did have the standard $200 million budget. So budgetarily, you want your movie to be doing better than this, but also the fact that this isn't just another movie. This isn't just a little piece of the puzzle or a one-off adventure. This was the linchpin kickoff to Phase 5 of the MCU, and it is now performing like the first movies of heroes that had no established canon in the MCU and in stories that weren't as critical to the overarching story that Marvel is trying to tell. And on last week's show, as I was talking about how I think that the opening for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania wasn't bad for what the movie was and for what the expectations were. And, you know, it exceeded those expectations slightly. I also said that I felt that this was a distinct possibility because of the cinema score for the movie, which was a B, which was a tie for the lowest cinema score of any MCU movie ever. And there was a healthy number of you that were saying like, ah, cinema score doesn't mean anything. It's a bunch of garbage. And, you know, saying why that wasn't really that significant. But the thing is that it is significant. And you can do those research and you can look in those numbers and just saying that cinema score doesn't mean anything doesn't necessarily make it so. And when I'm bringing you information on this show, I think that we're sort of at a point now with the internet where everything is kind of take driven. It's like any piece of information that you hear somebody say on the internet, it's like, well, it's driven by their take on it. Like it's driven by their opinion or it's driven by some ideology. And the big thing that I try to do with this show is of course I will share my opinion on where I think that a movie's going to go. But the other thing that I try to do is give you hard numbers and data and facts. And the fact is that this looks like a very real possibility based on that cinema score. And looking at that cinema score last week, it should have been apparent that people generally were not excited by this movie. The people that cinema score surveys are the hardcore of the hardcore MCU fans. They're the ones that go on opening night. They're there day one to see these films. And if they're not excited by it, then yes, it has been proven that the box office is going to suffer as a result. So I was a little surprised that it fell almost 70%. I thought it might fall between 65 to 68% or so, but I wasn't shocked that the movie didn't do well, and it, it does follow the pattern of the data that we've been looking at. And going back to really Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, 2021 was so hard to talk about with the MCU for all those other reasons, because of the pandemic, because of Disney+, Plus, because people were still going back to the theaters. But when Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness came out and we got the cinema score for that film, and then we started to see how Thor Love and Thunder was doing and we got the cinema score for that film, and we were looking at the MCU, if you go back to the archives, I've been saying, listen, the data is suggesting that audiences are cooling 
on Marvel films. And this is what we're seeing now. It seems like we are seeing the escalation of something that really kind of started last summer. It's not every Marvel film. Like I said, Wakanda Forever did well financially. It did well on cinema score. It didn't match what the first Black Panther did, but I don't think most reasonable people thought that it was going to replicate that sort of lightning in a bottle success. So it's not every movie. And I think that because Spider-Man No Way Home did so well, people kind of inflate how Marvel is doing. But I really think, and I said this last week, that Marvel has some serious soul-searching to do here because this, to me, was the final confirmation that we have ended an era here, the era of Marvel being bulletproof, the era that if you put out a movie in the MCU, then it's going to get great reviews and it's going to make enough money to justify its budget and it's going to keep fans invested, and you can kind of drive this perpetual machine. And of course, that was never going to be the truth. It was going to end someday, but I think what this shows us is that that day is now. And Marvel really now has to go back to the drawing board and say, we have to win people over all over again. We've got to go back to 2007, 2006, John Favreau and Robert Downey Jr. doing crazy make ups on the set of Iron Man, which never should have worked, but which was the first foundational building block in this massive Marvel Cinematic Empire. You cannot take that for granted anymore. They have to go back and start winning people over again because they told this epic story over a decade and it ended in Avengers Endgame. And a lot of the audience is kind of looking at Marvel and saying, okay, what do you have now? And it seems very obvious that they're not overly impressed with what's going on. So we have the delay with the Marvels. It's not coming out this summer. It's coming out later this year. Kevin Feige says they're slowing down production on TV shows, etc. That's what they need to be doing because Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania, I don't really know how it's going to do money-wise. I don't think it's going to turn that much of a profit if it turns a profit at all. We'll see where the worldwide numbers end up, but it's doing about the same worldwide. So we could be looking at about 500 million, 600 million worldwide as we get to the end of that box office run, which is not a lot of profit margin, but more importantly, they need to be looking at the profit margin in the future because the days of the inevitable Marvel machine are now gone. One other wrinkle with Ant-Man is that Disney is famous for usually under-reporting the Sunday gross. So when you do the box office estimates, which most trades and stuff, they run their box office news cycle based on the estimated weekend gross so they can get the news out on Sunday and they don't have to wait you know, for Monday and all that stuff. So the Sunday box office numbers that are reported are usually estimates from the studio where they say, well, based on the sales Friday and Saturday, we think the movie's gonna sell this much on Sunday, and so this is the number that we're gonna report. And that's why I like to wait here on the show for the actual numbers when we get the hard data from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and see how much the movie's actually made. Disney is infamous for under-reporting the Sunday number. So, you know, Black Panther will open, and there will be a story that runs and says, well, Black Panther opened to $180 million, and then it turns out that Disney under-reported that number and the real story is like, actually, when the real numbers came in, it opened to $185 million. So it makes it look like the movie did even better than Disney thought it was going to do. Disney actually overreported the gross for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania so that when the box office news cycle began on Sunday, it was still a big drop. But it was a little bit less of a drop. It was closer to like a 68 to 69% drop instead of the 69.9% drop. And I think that was a little gamesmanship on Disney's part, you can actually fudge these estimates one or two million dollars and just kind of say like, well, you know, what? it's an estimate. What are you going to do? And I think that Disney actually was playing a little bit of a game with the media because they know that the majority of box office stories are written on Sunday and the drop didn't look quite as bad as when the final numbers came in. Because if you go back and look, most Disney estimates are lower than what the actual number is. Their numbers on Sunday were a little bit higher. That's just the way it goes sometimes. Let's talk about a couple of the other films in the top five, though, and the number two film specifically, which was Cocaine Bear, which did seem to tap into that sort of underground zeitgeist. It also did not have a great cinema score. I think it came in at a B minus, which doesn't bode well for its legs this upcoming weekend. We'll see how it does. Sometimes these movies can defy it. 
Most times they can't, but it still put up a respectable opening and one bigger than a lot of people saw. And let's see where it falls in the overall pantheon of bears in cinema. And when I say movies about bears, it can get a little weird because it's like, well, is Brave a movie about bears? Is The Golden Compass a movie about bears? I mean, bears certainly do play a big part of it. And I sat there and debated this with myself for a much longer time than anyone involved in this conversation should be comfortable with. And I decided for the purposes of this exercise, when I say movies about bears, I mean a movie where the title character is a bear or it refers to a bear specifically. So when we look at the top five bear movie openings domestically, it's really no surprise that Kung Fu Panda dominates this list. The first Kung Fu Panda back in 2008 is number one with $60.2 million, followed by Ted back in the summer of 2012 with $54.4 million. Kung Fu Panda 2 is at number three with $47.6 million, followed by Kung Fu Panda 3 at number four with $41.2 million, and then Ted 2 at number five. But, you know, live action movies about bears do tend to skew a little bit more adult. So I decided to specify this result from all movies about bears to live action bear movie openings. And when we do that, we now see where Cocaine Bear ranks. Ted and Ted 2 take up the number one and number two spots, $54.4 million and $33.5 million. Then we have Cocaine Bear at number three with $23.2 million. Then like the opposite of Cocaine Bear, which is Paddington at number four, the first Paddington film with $18.9 million. It opened in early 2015 here domestically. And then at number five, Yogi Bear who was, yes, animated, but the film was live action, so it counts $16.4 million debut back in 2010. And because I just wanted to keep going down this rabbit hole and make this chart, this is a chart for live action bear movie openings domestically adjusted for inflation. And nothing really changes. I just think it's a ridiculous chart and I wanted to make it. Ted and Ted 2 remain number one and number two. Ted, the first movie, had an adjusted opening of $70.9 million. It was a huge hit back in summer 2012. Paddington flips with Cocaine Bear. Paddington now at number three with 23.9, and I will take every opportunity to give Paddington another win. Cocaine Bear at number four with 23.2 million, and then Yogi Bear much closer there at number five with 22.5 million. I also wanted to make a point to talk about Jesus Revolution, which really exceeded expectations in third place. And part of it is, and we're going to keep going back to Cinema Score, it received an A plus Cinema Score, the first movie of 2023 and the 105th movie overall to get an A plus on Cinema Score. That gives the co director of the film, John Irwin, the most A plus movies all time with four. That includes Jesus Revolution, Woodlawn, I Can Only Imagine, and American Underdog, all of them aimed at the Christian faith-based crowd. And given the size of its opening, if Jesus Revolution performs like you can only imagine did several years ago, then we're looking at a final box office around 60 to $70 million. So this is going to be a sizable hit here. And again, these A-plus cinema score movies, and especially with that faith-based crowd, some of them play big, some of them play smaller, but you usually get three and a half, four, four times the opening weekend multiples when you have this reaction, this crowd reaction to these movies. There's so much more to get to today, but before we do, I want to thank one of the sponsors for this week, BetterHelp. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, and it's a really busy time of year for me. We've got the Oscars, award season travel, I'm planning a wedding, running the channel. Self-care is something that, quite honestly, I haven't really taken the time to do in the past, but that I've recently started making the time to do using BetterHelp. And they provide a wide range of therapists with specialties suited to what I want to address and improve about myself. Mental health is something that a lot of people just aren't comfortable talking about publicly, but it's incredibly important, and not just for people that are going through a difficult or a traumatic time. I found that everyday stress can really add up, trust me, and it's been really useful for me these last few weeks to talk about some of that with a mental health professional. BetterHelp is entirely online, it's flexible to your schedule, and it's convenient. You'll fill out a brief questionnaire, be matched with a licensed therapist, and if you want to switch therapists, you can do so at any time free of charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Merle to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Merle, and I want to thank them for sponsoring today's show. 
Let's take a minute to check in with Avatar The Way of Water and really its competition with Top Gun Maverick to see what will be the highest grossing film released in 2022 domestically. And when we look at the daily grosses for Top Gun Maverick versus Avatar The Way of Water, it really does look more and more inevitable that Maverick is going to be the highest grossing film of 2022 because you see those two lines, the red and blue line, have almost met. And I think that by the end of next weekend, uh, this time next week as we're sitting here talking, then Top Gun Maverick will have crossed the blue line that is Avatar The Way of Water, and I think that it is going to edge out that win. I think it is going to remain the highest grossing film of 2022 domestically with Avatar The Way of Water finishing just behind. When we look at the 2022 domestic top 10, you see Top Gun Maverick still number one, $718.7 million. Avatar The Way of Water up to $665.5 million domestically. So really Really not much to complain about there. Wakanda Forever at $453.7 million, but look down there at number 10. We've been tracking this for several weeks, and it finally happened. When you look at the record books, Black Adam will no longer be the 10th highest grossing film of 2022 domestically. It will be Puss in Boots' The Last Wish, at least. Who knows? If it does well at the Oscars or people just keep going, it could even maybe pass Sonic the Hedgehog 2 up there at number 9. It would take a little bit of doing. But Black Adam is now no longer one of the 10 highest grossing films of 2022 domestically, and Puss in Boots' The Last Wish and those four little legs have carried it all the way into the domestic top 10. So congratulations to Puss in Boots The Last Wish. I always like to see a fun movie like that make it. When we look at the 2023 domestic box office, now this is by calendar gross. So this is all ticket sales from January 1st, regardless of when the movie came out. Avatar The Way of Water remains at number one, $264.5 million. We looked at the potential path forward for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I still think it's possible when all said and done, it's still the highest grossing film of the year once Quantumania's box office run ends. We'll just have to see if it can have weekends that were better than its weekend one to weekend two. Put Puss in Boots, The Last Wish at number three with $117.7 million. Megan stays at number four. A Man Called Auto stays at number five. 80 for Brady's at number six. Knock at the Cabin has now passed Plane for number seven. Plane drops to number eight. Missing is at number nine. And Cocaine Bear knocks out Magic Mike's Last Dance for number 10 on the 2023 domestic box office chart. And when we look at the winter spring box office, so these are movies released in 2023. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, the top selling release of this year, $167 million, followed by Megan at number two, 80 for Brady at number three, Knock at the Cabin up one spot to number four, Playing down one spot to number five, Missing at number six, Cocaine Bear debuts on the chart at number seven, Magic Mike's Last Dance drops down one spot to number eight, Patan drops down one spot to number nine, and Jesus Revolution entering the top 10 at number 10. 2023's House Party and the Titanic 25th Anniversary are both now out of the top 10 for winter 2023. One chart that I did last year that I held off on just as the year got rolling was the domestic box office market share. So what percentage of the ticket sales is each studio getting starting on January 1st? Again, all movie tickets sold since January 1. I'll probably update this at the end of every month unless there's some big shifts during the summer movie season. But when we look at the market share for the year so far, it's really no surprise that Disney has the lion's share here. Again, no pun intended, 42.59% of all movie tickets sold year to date were for Disney films. That's not a shock because Avatar The Way of Water is a Disney film now that they bought Fox. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, also a Disney film. Universal there with 26.2%, a very healthy portfolio. The fact that Puss in Boots The Last Wish is a universal film certainly doesn't hurt matters. Paramount has sold 5.37% of tickets so far this year. Sony with 10.35%. Warner with 3.02%. Their year really hasn't even started yet. And then all other studios at 12.45% of ticket sales. That includes your A24s, your Lionsgates, etc. But Disney really starting out dominant this year when we look at all movie theater tickets sold. 
Let's return to the weekend box office and look at the per theater averages for this past weekend. At number one was the Irish film The Quiet Girl, which is an Oscar nominee for Best International Film. It began its official rollout release after an Oscar qualifying run at the end of last year. Six theaters for an average of $9,858 per theater. At number two, big drop notwithstanding, was Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania bringing in $7,357 in each of its 4000 345 theaters. At number three was Claire Denis' debut film from 1988, Chocolat, which was given a 4K re-release in one theater in New York. It brought in $7,195 in that one theater. And it was not, as my initial research seemed to indicate, the screening of the 2000s Best Picture nominee, Chocolat, starring Johnny Depp and Juliette Binoche. It also played in one theater this past weekend. It was the final film in the Foodie Comfort Series at the Waldo Theater in Waldoboro, Maine. Tickets were 8 bucks for adults and $5 for kids. That's a great deal. And I'm happy to hear that they were able to do the screening because last month's screening of Julie and Julia, which was the second film in the Foodie Comfort Series, was canceled due to a snowstorm. If you happen to be passing through Waldoboro, Maine this weekend, be sure to check out the Waldo, which is a beautiful 1930s era theater, recently restored and reopened. They'll be having a free, free family film showing of Steven Spielberg's The BFG this Saturday afternoon at 2. So if you find yourself in Waldeboro, Maine, check out The BFG and tell them Dan sent you. You know, this is a really interesting show because, you know, one minute you are researching the biggest weekend one to weekend two drops of all time for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the next moment you almost list a showing at an obscure theater in Maine on your per theater average chart, and then you realize that it's a different movie, but then you want to know more about that obscure theater in Maine, so then you keep looking up information about the Waldo Theater in Waldoboro, Maine, which, by the way, is run by a team of volunteers who opened this 1936, I think, movie house and renovated it and saved it from complete dilapidation and are now turning it again into a palace for showing movies, which, by the way, you're doing the work of every cinephile ever, so thank you. I also really kind of hope beyond hope that there is one Charts with Dan viewer that actually lives in Waldoboro, Maine, because I think I just blew their mind. Anyway, shout out to the Waldo Theater in Waldoboro, Maine, because you almost got listed on Charts with Dan, because I thought that the chocolate that you showed was the chocolate that was playing in New York. Two different chocolates. Almost a big mistake, but hey, great job. Keep doing what you're doing. Anyway, at number four, you wonder why this show takes me so long to do, is Cocaine Bear, $6,582 per theater in 3,534 theaters. And at number five is Jesus Revolution, just behind Cocaine Bear, with $6,385 in 2,475 theaters. When we look at the five limited release films that made the most money this past weekend, at number one is the 2023 Oscar-nominated short films, just over half a million dollars in 370 theaters. It's in its second week of bringing the shorts to the people, so thank you for that. In second place was Emily, which in its second weekend had a big expansion to 579 theaters. It brought in $432,000. Last week, I said that it was based on Emily Bronte, and apparently the author's name is pronounced Emily Bronte which is weird because I've always heard it said Bronte, but I looked it up and it is apparently Bronte. One of my viewers said that my pronunciation of Bronte made them cringe. So, I mean, sorry, but also, you know, come on. At number three is Selfie, which is a Hindi language film from India, $195,979 in 308 theaters. Women Talking staying on the chart, 227 theaters for a $154,000 total. And then at number five, Living in 136 theaters, $137,000 total. When we look at the top 10 grocers in limited release for 2023, and again, this is from January 1st onwards, Patan still an easy number one, A Man Called Otto at number two for the portion of its release in which it was in limited release. The Wandering Earth 2 is at number three, Women Talking at number four, The Whales limited release portion is at number five, Living is at number six, Walter Viraya is at an unverified number seven, Fear is at number eight, Skinamarink is at number nine, and entering the charts is the Oscar Shorts 2023 theatrical release with just over 1.6 million dollars that drops out Billie Eilish live at the O2. Let's turn out of the box office outside the domestic market as we look at the top five films internationally and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania remains on top 46.4 million dollars in markets outside of the United States and Canada 
Avatar The Way of Water is at number two with $9.4 million. A Guilty Conscience is at number three with $8.5 million. This is a film out of Hong Kong. It's a kind of comedy drama legal film that was released last month. At number four is The Wandering Earth 2 with $7.7 million and Puss in Boots The Last Wish at number five. When you take those international numbers, you mash them up with the domestic numbers. We get our top five films worldwide and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, as I mentioned, held about as well worldwide as it did domestically, $78.3 million in its second weekend. Cocaine Bear with $28.5 million at number two, the vast majority of that coming from its domestic release. Avatar The Way of Water at number three with $14.2 million. Puss in Boots The Last Wish at number four with $11.4 million. And A Guilty Conscience at number five with $8.5 million. Looking at the 2023 worldwide box office, it mostly stays unchanged. Full River Reds at number one with $660 million. The Wandering Earth 2 is at number two. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is now over $350 million. It's at $363.2 million, which is about where Box Office Mojo had it last weekend. It was an error in the way they reported those numbers, so I'm glad I did not fall into that trap. It is now actually over $350 million. Boonie Bears Guardian Codes at number four. Megan, which I'm counting as a 2023 worldwide release for these purposes, is at number five with $172.3 million. Hidden Blade is at number six. Deep Sea moves up one spot to number seven. Patan moves down one spot to number eight. Chebarashka stays at number nine. And the 25th anniversary re-release of Titanic enters the chart at number 10. One other quick note on the worldwide box office before we move on is that the Super Mario Brothers movie has received clearance to be released in China. It's actually going to be released a couple of days earlier in China than it will be domestically to take advantage of some local celebrations. So yet another studio film that's getting a Chinese release date. And I'm starting to think, I mean, my spidey sense is tingling on the Super Mario Brothers movie here. If it lives up to potential, if it's actually a good movie, which I think the look of it is great, as long as the content isn't garbage, which there's never any guarantee. But if this is actually as fun a movie as it seems like it's going to be or could be, I think the domestic gross, the international gross, especially with the Chinese release, we could be looking at a pretty big hit here. Now, if it sucks, then it may not do anything, but I don't know. I just have a feeling about this movie. If it's a ton of fun, it could also be making a ton at the box office. So stay tuned. That China release has been secured. This is the part of the show where I like to take a look at a weekend from Box Office Pass, but also pay tribute to the legacy of people in the world of film, television, and entertainment who have left a mark and have passed away uh, sometime in the past week. I can't always get to everybody, but I want to highlight a few people this week. The first is Tom Whitlock, who was a lyricist and helped to compose songs for many different movies, the most prominent of which being Top Gun. He and Giorgio Moroder together wrote four songs for the film, the most famous being Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone and Take My Breath Away, which was performed by Berlin in the film and for which Whitlock and Giorgio Moroder won an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Also passing away is Rick Newman, who himself wasn't necessarily in front of the camera as often, but who helped to provide a forum for people who would go on to create an impact in the entertainment industry. Rick Newman created the legendary New York comedy club Catch a Rising Star, which helped to foster talents including Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman. It was one of the places that helped to birth the art of stand-up comedy, and its importance in the New York comedy scene and the stand-up comedy scene really cannot be overstated. I actually used that black and white picture you see there last week to talk about the passing of Richard Belzer, because Richard Belzer, who was a very prominent stand-up comedian at the time when Catch a Rising Star was founded, was basically the host for Catch a Rising Star for many, many years. So really two key figures to the early days of this comedy club, Richard Belzer and Rick Newman, both passing away within days of each other. And finally, I also wanted to recognize the contributions of Walter Mirisch, who passed away this past week at the age of 101. First of all, we should all be so lucky to have a life as long and as accomplished as Walter Mears's. He won an Academy Award as a producer for In the Heat of the Night back in the 1960s, a legendary and a landmark film starring Sidney Poitier. Walter Mirisch also founded, along with his brothers, the Mirisch Company, which produced some of the most, and I'll use this word because it is true in this case, iconic films of all time, including The Apartment, 
Some Like It Hot, The Magnificent Seven, West Side Story, The Great Escape, Fiddler on the Roof, so many others. Walter Mears, not one of those names like, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer or Jason Blum in today's parlance that you know right off the bat, but whose direct contributions and whose contributions through the company that he helped to found changed the course of film history. So Walter Mears, Tom Whitlock, Rick Newman, all three people whose contributions helped to contribute to the tapestry of film and television that is still being built and woven and made today. And as always, my thoughts go out to their friends, family, and fans. Let's look now at a weekend in box office history, and we're going to go back to 1996, February 23rd through the 25th, 1996, which saw the number one debut of Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx. And listen, I know that Jackie Chan had been around in the 80s and was known in the uh, you know film circles, etc., for many, many years, but to somebody at that time... Uh, for which film culture had not quite penetrated as much, especially in the 1990s. Rumble in the Bronx, for me, was maybe my introduction to Jackie Chan, or one of my first introductions to Jackie Chan, particularly in mainstream American entertainment. The fact that he had a number one opening film, that helped to pave the way for Rush Hour a couple of years later, and I think really helped to enhance and build his profile in the U.S. I remember seeing Rumble in the Bronx and wanting to see more of this guy, especially because they'd roll the credits and everything that he was doing. I'm like, who is this guy? I was 13 at the time. So yes, Rumble in the Bronx, maybe not one of Jackie Chan's most legendary films, but I think for American audiences, particularly and people of my age, an important film for helping to build his profile here in the U.S. At number two in its third week was the John Travolta Christian Slater action film Broken Arrow, directed by John Woo, which was a big hit back in 96. Muppet Treasure Island in its second week was in third place with $6.5 million. Also in its second week was Happy Gilmore with $6.3 million, and then Richard Dreyfus in Mr. Holland's Opus in its ninth week was still in the top five there with just over $5 million, and notably, opening in 19th place in very limited release was a movie from a young filmmaker called Wes Anderson called Bottle Rocket. It opened to $124,000 in just a handful of theaters. Wes Anderson, of course, has movies that open in many, many more theaters, even in their opening weekends generally, and certainly eventually, than Bottle Rocket did back in 1996. But as we always like to do here on the show, I like to hit the inflation button and just see what these grosses would look like in today's dollars. And when we hit that button for this weekend in 1996, Rumble in the Bronx is the number one movie with $18.7 million. Broken Arrow at number two with just over 16 million. Muppet Treasure Island with 12.4 million. Happy Gilmore with just over 12 million. Mr. Holland's Opus at $9.6 million and a $236,000 debut for Bottle Rocket in 19th place. There's so much more to get to on today's show, but before we do, I want to thank our other sponsor, AG1 by Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 a while ago because it was hard for me to get into the routine of taking daily supplements. You forget to take the pills, but breakfast is something that I do every single day. So when I take AG1, I put it into my breakfast shake, and it makes me feel like I'm covering my nutritional bases right off the bat and just starting my day off right. It's really helped me with improved digestion and gut health, but it's also good to know that I'm giving my body so many different things it needs, especially as I've just passed 40. AG1 is just one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day, or like I say, you can throw it into a shake, making it easy to live your best life. And every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients and delivered to me every month. So it's been super easy to make it a daily habit. Athletic Greens is also a climate neutral certified company. And for every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry right here in the U.S. In 2020 alone, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com Dan. That's athleticgreens.com Dan, D-A-N, and check it out. Well, before we go, as we always do, I want to take a look at what people are watching at home through different streaming services, and we will start with the iTunes Store, which saw a couple of debuts here. At number one, Knock at the Cabin, which is available for purchase and premium video on demand as part of Universal's agreement to have a shorter window for releases that open underneath a certain box office threshold. The Whale, also now available only for purchase, although I'm sure that rental window will probably open pretty soon. It's there at number two. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, now available only for purchase 
purchase. That premium video on demand window has closed. The Fablemans is at number four. Triangle of Sadness at number five. Plane available for purchase and premium video on demand at number six. At number seven is a Nicolas Cage Western called The Old Way. I'm really looking forward to Renfield, which comes out later this year. Uh, not straight to streaming. It's actually going to go into theaters. That looks like a crazy good time. At number three is Megan, which is available only for purchase. The PVOD window has also closed on that film. Alice Darling, starring Andy Kendrick, is at number nine. And Top Gun Maverick is at number 10. Let's look at the 10 most watched programs on Netflix. This is for the week of February 13th through the 19th. So just a week delay here. This also uses a custom metric that I call the PFV number, which is basically the number of hours watched divided by the runtime. That gives me the basic number of Netflix users who could potentially have finished viewing the movie, or PFV. At number one is Your Place or Mine with a PFV of 29.09, meaning 29.09 million Netflix users could potentially have finished viewing that program. You Season 4 is at number two with a PFV of 16. At number three is Squared Love All Over Again, which is a sequel to a Polish film from 2021, which apparently did very well on Netflix. Not good reviews for this movie, but an okay viewership, a PFV of 7.69. At number four is the Denzel Washington Mark Wahlberg movie Two Guns, not a Netflix original movie because it was made 10 years ago, with a PFV of 6.88. The Law According to Lydia Poet, season one, is at number five. This is a six-episode series from Italy, which is loosely based on the true story of the country's first female lawyer. PFE of 6.73 for the first season of that show. All the Places is at number six. This is a film out of Mexico for a PFE of 6.17. Physical 100 season one is at number seven for a PFE of 5.56. I have finished all of Physical 100 season one, and I have to say that is the best South Korean reality show about 100 people competing in a contest to see who has the best physique that I've ever seen. It's also a really good show. It's finally done. You can watch all of the episodes. It's, it's definitely worth the time and it's also just so wholesome everyone's so supportive of each other it's what reality tv should be at number eight is minions the rise of Gru with a pfe of 5.49 the woman king debuts on the chart at number nine with a pfe of 5.48 just behind minions the rise of Gru. and at number 10 is the south korean film unlocked about someone who drops their phone and then some creep unlocks it and like tracks them that has a pfe of 4.55 when we look at the most watched Netflix programs of 2023 for the calendar year to date, so it doesn't matter when the movies or shows were released, it's what people have watched so far this year. The Netflix original movie You People remains at number one with a PFE of 76.61. Jenny and Georgia season two is at number two with a PFE of 60.61. Your Place or Mine, though, is moving up the chart quickly, a PFE of 56.78. That moves The Pale Blue Eye down to number four. Wednesday season one down to number five with a PFE of 44.7 keeping in mind that's just this year. At number six is Glass Onion with a PFE of 39.98. You Season 4 debuts on the chart with a PFE of 39.93. Viking Wolf down one spot to number eight. Kaleidoscope down to number nine. Dog Gone, the movie about a dog who's gone. And by the way, I think I neglected to explain the plot of Cocaine Bear as well. It's about a bear on cocaine. Both of these movies, just very obvious animal films. A PFE of 28.85. Dropping off the list is the Netflix original film, Narvik. Let's look now at the most watched movies and series when we look at the Nielsen streaming ratings. Now, caveats as always, these are delayed by about a month. They only cover the United States and they don't cover all devices, but it's the best look we have at how these different streaming services are stacking up against each other. This is for the week of January, January 23rd through the 29th. This was the debut week of You People, which clocked 26.2 million hours watched in the U.S., according to Nielsen. Shotgun Wedding on Amazon Prime Video is at number two with 14.5 million. Narvik on Netflix at number three with 7 million. And Trolls on Netflix at number four with 3.9 million. That bumps Glass Onion down to number five with 3.9 million over on Netflix. Encanto always on this list when there's not a whole lot else going on at number six with 3.4 million. Sing 2, also a very popular entry on this list, just over 3 million hours watched. Moana is at number eight. Jung E is at number nine. And Jurassic World Dominion on Amazon Prime Video is at number 10. 
Looking at the most watched streaming shows in the U.S. for January 23rd through 29th, Jenny and George is at number one with 21.6 million hours watched, followed by The Walking Dead at number two, That 90s Show at number three, Coco Melon at number four, The Last of Us on HBO Max moves up one spot to number five, 14.6 million hours watched, keeping in mind this only counts people that are watching it on HBO Max. This does not count people that are watching it on cable through HBO. So the number of people watching The Last of Us actually significantly higher and yet it's still in the top five when it comes to Nielsen. At number six is NCIS on Netflix. The Big Bang Theory on HBO Max at number seven. Grey's Anatomy on Netflix at number eight. Friends and Bluey tied for number nine. Last week, some people said like, well, wait a minute. If two shows are tied, then one's at number nine and one's at number 10. Well, yeah, but then you get like one less show and I want to let people know where people are watching. So I have them both there at number nine. And then Gilmore Girls at number 10 on Netflix with just over 10.4 million hours watched. And when we look at the top 20 streaming shows, when you looked at our watch per available episode so not just pure watch time watch time divided by how many specific episodes people can view at number one is the last of us 4.87 million hours watched per episode this was through three episodes of its weekly release cycle so broken down that way again you can see just how popular the last of us is just on streaming at number two is Poker Face, which was not in the overall top 10. This is Ryan Johnson's show on Peacock. It released four episodes in its first week, and it's there at number two, so we'll see if it can stick around. Physical 100, a big hit here. This was with only two episodes available, with 2.24 million hours watched per episode. That 90s show at number four with 1.61 million hours watched per episode. Wednesday, which fell out of the top 10, still in the top five when you look at most hours watched. 1.1 million hours watched for each of its eight available episodes. Jenny and Georgia is at number six. Lockwood and Company also on this list at number seven. Eight episodes for hours watched per episode of 937,500. Coco Melons at number eight. Women at War is at number nine. And Vikings Valhalla rounds out the top ten. And that does it for what happened this past weekend here on Charts with Dan, but it is a busy week here in theaters, on streaming, so many options coming up. First of all, tomorrow, Wednesday, March 1st, The Mandalorian Season 3 debuts on Disney+. Plus. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Sex Life Season 2 debuts Thursday on Netflix. And then a big weekend. First of all, Creed 3 opens in wide release this Friday. Also opening in wide release is Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, which is Guy Ritchie's new film. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking about the fact that it had come out in Europe, but there was no U.S. release date set yet. Well, it got a release date, and all of a sudden, it's just now coming out. So if you want to see that new Guy Ritchie film, it's hitting domestic theaters this this weekend. Also hitting theaters on Friday night for a one-night-only engagement is Demon Slayer to the Swordsmith Village. It's the last two episodes of the Entertainment District arc, which was season two of the show, and then the first episode of the new Swordsmith Village arc, which is season three of the show. It'll be in theaters around the country on Friday night. I am so excited for this. We already have our tickets. I can't wait. I may talk about it here on the channel. I am slowly being won over to the world of anime, and Demon Slayer is my favorite so far. So I am super excited to see those last two episodes, which are so kick-ass on the big screen. And then this first episode of season three, Another big anime thing that's happening on Friday night is the premiere of Attack on Titan, the final season, part three, episode one, which is debuting on Crunchyroll. Uh, this is a newer thing that I got into, and uh, I'm still catching up on it, but I I'm kind of glad that I wasn't following it in real time because this is the final season of Attack on Titan, but it started airing back in 2020, and they keep dividing it up into smaller and smaller parts. So we're now on the third part of the final season, but the third part is now going to be divided into two different like movie length things. So this is part one of part three of season four of Attack on Titan with the final part to come at some point this year. So it's basically been a three-year-long process to get the final season of Attack on Titan out. But uh, I still have to catch up on the rest of the final season that I haven't seen. But uh, yeah, I'm very glad I didn't have to wait in agony with all of you Attack on Titan fans for these years and years and years just to finish this show. Some other movies opening include Children of the Corn, which was actually shot in Australia back in 2020 during like the early part of the pandemic. It's finally 
finally getting a limited release this Friday. It's on an 18-day theatrical window before going to streaming. There's also a film starring Michael Shannon and Kate Hudson called A Little White Lie that's opening in limited release, and a Sundance winner from last year called Palm Trees and Power Lines. Director Jamie Dack won the directing award in the U.S. Dramatic Competition. It will also be in limited release this weekend. And that does it. It's been a long show. Thank you for sticking around through all of it. Thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week, BetterHelp and Athletic Greens, the makers of AG1. You can find information about all of them down in the description below, as well as Carbon Health, who's my partner as always. And of course, thank you as always for spending a big chunk of your day here with me. I'll be back, I think, several times this week. I have a video that I'm working on about how the Oscars work. I do a deep dive into how nominations work. How does the whole ranked choice voting thing work? I do a big simulation for best picture. It's a really interesting video that I'm trying to get finished for this week. I'm going to be reviewing Creed 3. I'll probably talk about The Mandalorian. Anything else that comes up this week, I'll talk about. So it should be a busy week here on the channel. Stay tuned and of course stay tuned as we get ramped up for the oscars because i'll be covering the awards oscar night my reactions my predictions all of that stuff is upcoming until next time though stay safe and i'll see you then bye